0: Welcome to Let's Talk Sales. This is a podcast for anyone who's interested in growing sales. Today's episode of Let's Talk Sales is brought to you by our ebook, Being a Grateful Leader. In it, you'll discover the personal, professional, and even medical benefits of gratitude, as well as how you can practice gratitude as a leader. Make sure to download a copy today. You can find it in the notes for today's show at criteriaforsuccess.com pod 304. This is Elizabeth Frederick, and I am so glad we could bring today's guest back to the show. He's the director of QED, where he builds change competence through increased resilience, reduced burnout, mental adaptability and accountability. I feel like those topics are somewhat relevant to this moment. (laughs) He's a psychologist specializing in evaluation, learning and development. And he hosts a podcast that's great, highly recommended called Resilience Unraveled. He's based in Southampton in the UK. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Russell Thackeray.
1: Hey, Elizabeth, it's lovely to be back. Thank you so much for inviting me again. I'm very much looking forward to our conversation.
0: I am as well. Um, So longer term listeners might remember you. Um, We spoke in episode 224 in February 2020. But um, I would imagine, hopefully, we've got quite a few new listeners since then. So could you introduce yourself to those listeners?
1: Yeah. Um. Well, as you said, I'm a business psychologist. Um, I work in the area of change and human potential and performance and such like. Um, I often work with leadership organizations or leadership teams in large or small organizations. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I work with entrepreneurs. And my own background has a, a degree of um, time as a sales and marketing person as well. So I have a, a great affection for sales and marketing people and an understanding of some of their challenges and issues, but also um, you know, there's plenty to say about how ch- how sales and marketing need to be um, functionally resilient and adapt and learn and, and move forward.
0: Definitely. That makes a lot of sense. And um, the I would imagine as you've seen so many different organizations kind of across your career, um, both in your own experience and then as clients, you've you've seen a lot of different examples of um, the challenges people face as well as the best practices. So.
1: Elizabeth, thank you for pointing out that I'm very, very old. But, uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> but
1: you are right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the point of actually some consultants, isn't it? It is funny, isn't it, how you do meet consultants who who never run a business or they've never bought or sold a business or they've you know never sort of done the job. Uh, lots of trainers have only ever trained. But, you know, I think there's an advantage to working with people who've, who've been there, seen it and done it. Because actually, when you're leading, mentoring, coaching, whatever the phrase might be, it's really good to know that someone's been there before and done it. Now, the caveat, of course, to that now is that we're in a really different world. And I think we all have mm-hmm. to start rethinking things to... To think of the world ahead, because the world ahead of us is very different from the world behind. Whereas ten years ago, the year behind, you know, ten years before mm-hmm. that wasn't that different, but now it's very different. So I think it's a, we're on the cusp of something really exciting.
0: Definitely, and it's almost like you were leading me to my next question. Thank you Hope for that, so Russell. Not. It's like you're an expert at podcasts. So, <laughs> like I mentioned before, the last time we had you on the show was in early February 2020, and looking back. It was a bit of a different world then. Uh, I think we were starting to hear stories about things happening in Wuhan, China, but weren't sure what to think. What would uh, was coming? And the world has changed a lot. Um, you know, there's been a lot of trauma, um, but I think there's been some silver linings and some moments of hope. Um, so you study resilience. What are some of the things that you've learned over the last year? That could be things that you had maybe seen glimpses of before that have become more apparent, or as you said, new things that have arisen, um, new expectations that have arisen that are impacting um, how we should behave in the world.
1: Yeah, it's a big subject, this, isn't it? So mm-hmm. let's 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 see let's see what we can do with it. Um, I think first thing I've noticed is and I think a lot of people have noticed this, they've realized they have resilience because they have mm-hmm. got through. And um there's been some celebration of that and a recognition that resiliency, I think is what you call it in the States, is 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 actually something that's pretty vital. And I think what's also started to happen is people have turned their attention to it and they've started to mm-hmm. make the term a little meaningless. Because it's now become yeah. everything. It's a bit like the word stress. Ten years ago, you know, yes, you, you know, stress is this, that, the other. and People have forgotten what stress really is, and resilience is starting to go that way. As is this terrible term mental health, which is starting mm-hmm. to go the same sort of way. So I think first of all, realize, oh, don't get me started on that. <laughs> but I mean, um, we've we've noticed that people are coming back, and, and I and I've always thought actually it's a very interesting thing to link. Um, psychological resilience with economic resilience. And if you think mm. about it, when there's a depression or when the market crashes, it comes back in either a U shape, a W shape, a K shape. And actually uh-huh. what I've started to notice, that that actually bears out in terms of um, psychological resilience as well. So you do have people who um, they crash down, they have the dip, and then they come back again, and that's mm. fine. And you have two people who come, who crash down, they come back a little bit. And then the drop down again and they go back again. So, mm. you know, it's it is actually quite fascinating. And I think I've seen and maybe I've looked at the correlation so I found it, but you know, um, I have seen a bit of a correlation about that. Um, I think I think what we've also noticed is that resilience can be slightly problematical in the sense that people, in order to build resilience, think that resilience is about going back to where you were before.
0: Mm. And I think
1: this idea of bouncing back is something I think I probably talked about last year and I said we use the term bouncing forward because actually when you're bouncing back it sort of implies that you're going backwards whereas actually bouncing forward it means that you sort of it's like you're you know it's it's like trying to step back into the river that, that was there you need to move forward uh-huh. you need to be different so in other words you know, when we talk about resilience, we talk about the accountability of knowing something's gone wrong and you're part of it. And then we talk about the the recognition of what you're going to do differently and the innovation of how you will make things be different. So, you know, that if, if you're going to get knocked back again in the future, it'll be for a different reason. It won't be for the same one. So you sort of make yourself... Tougher um, in the mm-hmm. sense that you're able to be more sp- um, like strong rubber. You're still very, very strong, but mm-hmm. you can still bend and flex. Mm-hmm. So you can really bounce really, really high. Where some people are like glass, aren't they? When you when you drop them, they just shatter mm-hmm. into a thousand pieces. And I think we've seen a ton a ton of difference. And I think what we're noticing about resilience was the tricky thing that we had in our country where we we um, we all locked down and we all locked down together. And it was, it was a great sense of us, everybody being in this together and a sort of mm-hmm. a great um, national pride in a, and we were all doing something. And then of course, what starts to happen is, you know, people broke ranks and then lockdown sort of came to an end. And then we went back to the real world, blinking in the light and it was all marvellous. And then suddenly we're all locked down again. And the second mm-hmm. lockdown has been the problem because this is the one where the weather's been different. We've not been all together. It's been mm-hmm. more, there's been a lot more, negativity about the whole process a lot more you know uh, anti-vax talk there's been a lot more at the same time as having this massive hope of vaccines there's a lot more conspiracy theories a lot more people briefing against things so you've seen the insidious effects of negativity sort of feeding into the under the guise of um, pragmatism you've seen all Uh this negativity feeding in And, and it makes you notice that if you have someone in your organization who's feeding a negative story in your team, it's funny how it can take hold. Yes. And you know, you can all be as positive as you want, but you have one negative person that can have an un you can have an un they can have an effect greater than the numbers of people who have that who have the belief of it. Because it starts to Yeah, people who believe it, people who doubt, and people who don't believe it in a funny sort of sort of sort of way. And what happens, you can start to rock your teams and lose that effectiveness. And that mm-hmm. can be down to uh, losing belief in a manager, uh, you know, your sales manager who's suddenly so, so been great, everyone turns against them through to, and a client who you used to love because they used to work really well with you, and now they're not spending as much with you because they're in trouble, and suddenly you're thinking, oh, well, that's because they're this and that. And and it's really important that we have a we have a great idea of what facts are and that what reality really is. And whilst everybody's reality is different, we have to be very clear about. Being sure about the things we're sure about and ignoring the things we're not you know capable of understanding and recognizing things like um and I think um, many of us have recognized the political nature of the media uh-huh. and how the media aren't they they aren't objective. they aren't they uh-huh. aren't impartial. they're part of the narrative. And I think in the u k that's been a massive thing because our media has always been seen as very, very separated from politics, and now we, Now we're waking up to a media landscape that looks a bit more like yours. So there's been seismic changes. And what we know is we've got increasing mental health problems, which means Uh all that mental health stuff we've talked about in the past can't have worked. We've got huge engagement problems, which means all the solutions we talked about in the past about engagement hasn't worked. We've got issues with All sorts of different areas, including organizational resilience. How do you come out of the stocks really, really fast and then maintain that pace? How do Mm -hmm. you keep the pace that some organizations got during lockdown when people work from home? Amazingly, one of my clients said to me that uh, an organizational change, which they had planned to take two years, took them six days in lockdown. Wow. That productivity went through the ceiling during lockdown. Uh-huh. That uh, and and not all of, all of that was for a good reason. But you saw suddenly, organisations who'd said we can't have you working from home because we don't trust you, suddenly people are saying we don't want you back in the office because actually we <laughs> want to keep those levels of productivity and stop you chatting to everybody on the time. <laughs> and we're seeing this we're seeing this turning on the head of some quite you know old ideas. And I think what managers and leaders have to do is to avoid that stepping back into the old river and say we're coming back, and it's not a new normal. We're coming back to a new, and wh- how we create that newness and how we create that new world is going to be uh, one of the most exciting things I think we're going to see in a generation.
0: Definitely. Uh, I loved something that you said that that really struck stuck out to me uh, early on about the idea that the curves that we're seeing in terms of economic comebacks... Um, Are kind of echoing in at an individual or even an organizational level. And I know here in the States, what we've seen is historically disadvantaged groups saw a greater impact from COVID. They had more health impacts, even if they had the same level of infection, and they've had significantly higher economic impacts. Um, We just got a jobs report out for the month of April and all the job gains were with men and we're still seeing women leaving the workforce. And that is, you know, without getting into a long rant, that's definitely tied to the caregiving responsibilities and the lack of a social safety net and the fact that schools are closed. So a lot of women, um, you know, have to have to be at home or feel that they have to be at home. But um, it's, it's fascinating to see at a big picture level how your individual resilience is one thing, but if the situation around you prevents you from, um, you know, engaging with the world and the economy and your job in the way that you would like to, uh, you know, to a certain extent, you may be prevented from doing that. And making sure at a leadership level that if we have certain people on our team who've been well positioned for the bounce forward, right, um, that we're not ignoring or forgetting the people that have more structural challenges that are getting in their way um, that we don't leave them behind.
1: Wow, that is really insightful. I think um, two or three things there. One which I'd say is I wonder if there's a vested interest in keeping some of those high powered flying women out of the workplace. Mm-hmm. I think there's, there's almost been a, a lamb grab for the white privileged male 50s. Mm-hmm. Market to sort of reclaim some of their territory away from some of the things, but they won't be able to hold on to it because of the advance of technology and the way that the world is changing. So, yes, I think they're hanging on, but that will change. I think you're right about poverty and such like, and I think well, I think we'll see the rise, not maybe in the states so quickly because of your po- curious political situation. Mm-hmm. But I think we're going to see the rise of more social enterprise. I think we're going to, yeah. I think we're going to see um, social enterprise find its place because of the the green issues and because of, as you say, poverty. It makes no sense to have the vast majority of the Western world being in a state of poverty. Because if you're a capitalist, you want them to have money to spend. So why would you keep them down? It's like in the last big recession, China had to reduce its prices because no one was buying its products. It had to make them, you know, uh, viable. But Mm -hmm. I think think what's happening is we're seeing a massive social change. I think we're seeing, I think we're saying the last of prejudice. I mean, you're seeing all the disadvantaged groups, the trans people, gay people, even, you
0: mm-hmm. know, th-
1: that some of the some of those arguments re, re- unva- un, uh, unraveling and going back 10 years again. It's almost like people are saying, you know, we, we, all these people got these gains and now let's take them back. But of yeah. course, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. And if, in an organizational sense, you know, you want all the talents working for you. And if you've got a young trans person, they know more about a customer base and technology than probably, you know, Mr. Mm-hmm blotty face who's 57 <laughs> and doesn't actually know, you know, which way up um, um, an emoji works. And certainly never heard a clubhouse or anything along those lines, you know, where all the action's taking place. So, you know, we have to, we have to recognize that we move forward and each succeeding generation a, is very critical of the next one and B, you know, needs to learn to get out of the way.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think, um, you know, just as you said, what, what we, have to think about as leaders and, um, as people working in organizations is making sure that we're not just, um, just going with the flow, which may be moving in negative directions, or some people maybe intentionally pushing it in one direction and making sure that we are, we're taking a stand and we're moving toward, um, positive change and sometimes providing extra support or bringing people up or, or helping, them, um, you know, creating space for them to be more resilient, um, as opposed to just um, expecting everybody to to respond in the same way.
1: And you're right, Elizabeth, but maybe you, and you, you are right, and actually, I'm going to violently agree with you here, but um, <laughs> but I want to push it another way. But uh-huh. people help. yes, we should be supporting people and giving them room and options and all that sort of stuff, but people have to step up. They have to be accountable. They have to mm-hmm. be adult. You know, we can't run organizations so terrified of our people and their feelings that we can't just actually get the performance we need, which benefits everybody in the first place and allows us to have a particularly exciting and, you know, really, really, um, uh, genuinely sort of um, liberated workplace. Liberated people and people whose potential has been liberated do great work, and but but but. You can, all you can do is is create the situations. It's like a garden, mm-hmm. isn't it? All you can plant the, f- the seeds and such like, and and feed it and put the manure on. But ultimately, the seeds have got to do that growing thing.
0: Yes. <laughs> I could not agree with you more there. Um, and then I, I did want to get back to just that idea that you mentioned in terms of um, being like strong rubber. That's uh, a perfect analogy. And understanding that your organization may need to be different, and that that's not a bad thing and not a scary thing. And instead, um, both at, again, at an individual level and at an organizational level, thinking, what's the potential in this new world that we're coming into? And how can we take the lessons that we learned from the before times, <laughs> as well as the lessons that we learned during the lockdowns and the back and forths and the and the craziness on the economic um, front, and integrate all of that into a model that is you know, better for both the organization and for the individuals within the organization moving forward. And I think there's a lot of lessons, like you said, that, that companies can learn um, from those times instead of just blindly saying, okay, let's go back to how things were in February
1: 2020. And here's the and here's the rub. And, and I'm spot on. I totally agree with everything you said. But organizations, I mean, famously, I forget, I think it was um, uh, the lean guy, I forgot his name now. Uh, Kaizen and all that sort of stuff, uh, Deming, who sort of talked about plan, do, plan, do, review.
0: And, mm-hmm. you know, you look
1: at most organizations, some of them plan, all of them do, very few review. So uh-huh. what you get is do, plan, do, plan, do, plan, do, plan, do. A <laughs> little bit of review, plan, do, 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 do. And, you know, that's going on all the time. And I, I watch people and they don't do that learning. Uh, and it's very hit and miss. There aren't organizational structures for you know, making sure that, and you talk to project managers and you win a big contract and you come back and you celebrate the contract and the you, and manager says, right, on with the next one. They don't sit down often and say, right, what did we learn? You know, what are we going to spread? How is that going to work? What are we going to do differently? You know, what have we learned? What does that mean for us? What does that mean for other clients? You know we don't do learning as a conscious process because often we don't calculate the ROI on our learning. So we just see it as a, or, you know, that's not, that's not doing something and therefore it's not valuable. You know, thinking, when was thinking a valuable thing? No, 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 no. Let's just get out there and Hey, pedal to the metal or, you know, dial that next number or whatever the phrase is over there. (laughs) I was getting (laughs) lost on drilling oil for a second. Then I got myself (laughs) totally lost.
0: (laughs) No, that's a really powerful concept, especially because, um, again, just thinking back as a leader in an organization, I mean, here in New York, we were very fortunate at Criteria for Success in that we have clients in the logistics space um, who were doing a lot of work um, in China. And so they were... They were giving us signals that there was maybe more to this than we had expected, you know, than it happened with the the prior SARS epidemics and, and MERS or maybe they're not epidemic, but you know, um, yeah. Outbreaks that happened because they they didn't turn into that global pandemic, and they were giving us signals that things would happen. But still, as a leader in an organization, I remember uh, talking to our CEO Charles, and we were deciding if and when we were going to close the office. This was before we were told that we had to, and we were thinking, "Oh, this is going to be a two week little thing, you know, it's gonna, you know, minor little shutdown. It's going to be kind of fun." We planned all these team building activities, and then it still happened faster than we thought, and. Then it kept going and going and going. And then we gave up the lease on the office and now we're working from home indefinitely. And I think because of that kind of flip a switch into lockdown, it's harder sometimes for people to really think, okay, I need to take time to review um, both the decision process as we went into it and how we, you know, how we could have done things differently, um, as well as how do we move forward based on this experience. And it's so easy to just move into the next situation because you feel that sense of urgency without Um, really thinking through and, and analyzing, um, what's happening.
1: And it's because actually, you know, what happens is that people like to attribute blame. Uh-huh. And what happens, you know, um, you know, when airlines uh, airline pilots have a mistake, make a mistake, they always come back and report it, so all airline pilots can learn from it. But you know what happens in the corporate world when when a leader makes a mistake, they find you know twenty seven other people to blame for us. Uh-huh. because it's and and it's and it's such a shame, isn't it, that we don't see learning as a is that process which is is there to enhance the organization and our own credibility. We see it as a way of doling out blame and getting even sometimes. And, you know, it's a really interesting thing because if you think about it, you know, um, certainly UK many of the big pension funds are utterly dependent on property. And, of mm-hmm. course, the prices of property, commercial property, are going to be in a terrible situation because, just like you said, people mm-hmm. aren't going back to the offices anymore. We've got a real problem on our hands. You know, we've got a, and I guess a place like New York they are built on real estate, aren't they? I mean, mm-hmm. without, if your real estate values drop 30%, what's going to happen? And we've not thought about that because, of course, what everyone's thinking is how do we get the real estate values back up? And actually, there was always a little bit of a, a bump after a recession because, of course, there's pent-up demand from what happened during that recession. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of change coming over the horizon, which unless we actually get ready for it now, we're going to just be left. To, uh, we're going to be left because just like you said there, change is going to be so much faster.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And because we've learned to do change fast, haven't we? Actually, that old mantra of change is hard. Well, it's, it shows. I think I said this last time. Change isn't hard. <laughs> it isn't hard. We're changing all the time. Uh-huh. It's the it's the change management is hard yes. because you've got people in the way doing <laughs> management and getting in the way of it. So you know, it's um, you know, it's it's going to be it's going to be a different world, and it's going to need different leadership skills, different sales skills, and different and a different human skills in a funny sort of way.
0: Definitely. Yeah, I think um, a, a way to think about that is that change happens whether you want to respond to it or not, whether you want change to happen or not, and you can effectively manage the change in the organization or you can very much not do so and you may find that your organization doesn't survive the change. So, um, and um, I, I love that you that you went to the place of... Um, understanding our tendency to go to blame and shame. Because I I see in so many organizations that they don't have a language for review and analysis and accountability that doesn't devolve into blame and shame. And where I've seen really successful review processes. Um, I've seen that in a few different organizations over the years. Um, I had a client that had a process of every deal won or lost, they had an analysis process. And it wasn't this extreme detailed thing, but they had a simple outline and they got a team together and they just went through. Obviously with a win, it was a little bit more fun, but with a loss, it was still really impactful. And because they did it every time, It didn't feel like, you know, Russell, I'm asking you to talk about that deal you just lost. (laughs) Um, It was just, we're reviewing the deal because we review all of the deals and they were able to get a lot of learning out of it. And so I think that's a, that's a discipline that a lot of organizations could, um, could adopt, you know, again, not making a review, a really intense, we're going to, we're going to shut down for three weeks and look at how things went, (laughs) but, um, you know, the, a common expression, those who don't learn from the past are, are most likely to repeat it. And um, so often, we, we don't take that time, like you said, to go back and review. And we're really missing out on a lot of lessons um, that we could have learned.
1: And if you see medical teams review case files and case notes, what they do is they depersonalize it. So they mm-hmm. say the surgeon, the client, mm-hmm. They'll um, they might even say surgeon X. So what happens, salesperson B. Or something along those lines. So Mm -hmm. so you're not saying you, Fred, and when you did that, (laughs) it's actually you're saying the salesperson, this particular situation, took the, you know, did this this way. Mm -hmm. And now, because you're not interested in the motives, you're interested in the outcome, aren't you? So what you're trying to get to here is to say to someone, this is what we did, this is what happened. Then the reason that people normally do that is because of skill or because of situation. And then we can look at, well, if if someone's made that choice in the process and the you know, they've done something differently or something wrong. It's usually because the process is wrong, not because the person's wrong. And so mm-hmm. it's a, it's thinking about, okay, depersonalize it, make it easy for people to talk about it. Uh, allow. Uh I mean, the old, I mean, I used to use years ago, the, the De Bono six thinking hats. And they're a great mm-hmm. way of just, you know, allowing people to say this is what worked because I'm wearing my yellow hat. and This is what didn't work because I'm wearing my black hat. And of course, when you're saying it, you're not yourself, you're the hat. And it's a really great little system.
0: Anything that you can have that, that applies a framework like that can be incredibly powerful. Um, like you said, depersonalizing situations. And um, I think that this ties, you know, not to not to overuse the word in, here in this conversation, but it ties to the idea of resilience because I think a perception that we may often have is that a person should be open to review. And a resilient person is going to get a lot of blame and a lot of, you know, naming in a situation and they'll be fine because they're resilient. And what we're not recognizing is, first of all, that may not be a a healthy kind of resilience. And that's also not necessarily serving everybody in your organization, because certainly there are some people who could sit there and be blamed and it wouldn't bother them um, for some you know uh, reason, uh, but others uh, would not be able to handle that.
1: Yeah, but you see, and this is where this is where blame really starts to work for you if you wanted to. Because mm-hmm. every time I go into an organization and I review a sales force and the sales force are deficient in some way, there's always a deficient sales manager. I mean mm-hmm. always. Mm-hmm. And if there's not a deficient sales manager, there's an utterly deficient sales director. And what you see in the sales floor is absolutely reflected by leadership management. Uh-huh. And so what you have to do is, and this is why it's easier to have an external facilitator. When someone starts handling the finger of a blame, you just look at the leaders and the manager and say, so how did you allow that to happen?
0: Uh-huh. You know,
1: don't you throw around the blame because if you're blaming someone else, you've got to point the finger at yourself first because this person must have done that for a reason, either because they thought it was right, which case their thinking's in error, uh, which, which, and why didn't you fix that? Or because the skills aren't right. Or because situationally they just made the wrong call. Well, Okay, so you know how, how could that be allowed to happen? And what you find is that the, the people who are most fragile, the most glass, glassy, in a sense, or middle managers who actually take a lot of mm. terrible, you know, accusations from the sales floor, but also from their bosses as well. And it's a very difficult place to be a sales manager, as opposed to a director or marketing director, who of course are removed from the day to day and all are doing is their spreadsheet jockeys.
0: Definitely. Um, we see here in, in the US, and I'm not sure if it's the same um, in the UK and in Europe, but uh, one of the most short-tenured jobs is sales leadership um, whether it's VP of sales or, or just sales manager because like you said you're getting the pressure from below and from above and a lot of people crack in that process and it's it's especially challenging because you're getting you know from from your leaders why isn't your team performing like we want them to um, it must be your fault and then you're getting from the sales people why doesn't the organization give us the right kind of leads why are they setting goals so high why don't why don't they work and it's a really challenging position to be um, kind of the in-between yeah. for two groups that don't necessarily understand each other.
1: And, you know, a lot of sales managers, sales directors go back to the floor, don't they? Because they go Mm -hmm. back to the thing. they, You know, most people are over-promoted because they're good at the job, not because they're good at leadership management. So, you know, we see a lot of people who are very happy going back to the to the cold face, as it were, and starting to do this sort of basic job again, and why? And why should that be a problem? You know, isn't it fascinating? We've seen in this lockdown, you know, older people or people with more experience and wisdom, they're becoming delivery drivers and you know, carers uh-huh. and all that sort of stuff, and they're doing it in a way that's completely new and novel because uh-huh. suddenly those jobs now have got a different sort of meaning. People are going back to the. Uh, I'm a big fan of Superstore, which is a, you know, I met one of the American and television uh-huh. programs, and you've got the manager there who went back to being on you know, on the sales floor. I mean, why not? You know, what what a brilliant way of learning. We um, you know, we get we get cut or we get removed from the job and yet we still think we know all the answers when we're leading a sales team. And you know, most of the time we don't. We're we're doing that usual thing that everybody else is is waiting for someone to catch us out, find us out, or and then throw us out.
0: And to what you you were talking about a few minutes ago. So much in the world has changed. And so if you were a really successful salesperson 10, 15 years ago, mm-hmm. and then you've been promoted into leadership, the best practices that worked for you then are not the best practices that are going to work for your team now. And we see so often that salespeople promoted into leadership want to, and this is, this is not I think a a negative, you know, out of any negative reason, but they think this is what worked for me. So I'm going to teach it to you so you can be successful. And they're, uh, understanding of reality is not correct you know um maybe they were doing cold calls and cold calls don't work in your industry anymore maybe they were you know dropping off coffee and cookies and donuts um and and just walking into places and obviously that doesn't work in 2020 2021 um but whatever it might be uh, if you can as a leader have that closer experience to what it is that your team is living through now. um, That's going to give you a much better understanding. And actually, that'll help with conversations both up and out in the organization. You can tell your salespeople, yes, I see that. It's much harder to get people on the phone than I thought it was. Um, And then you can also advocate with experience up in the organization to say, hey, I've I've done this too. It's not just my whiny reps. Things are harder than we thought they were. Um, we need to rethink our strategy. So that's a really it, powerful- um, It is.
1: And in lockdown, of course, what happened is a lot of organizations followed their people, certainly in the UK. Uh-huh. So a lot of you know um, sales reps went home and the managers were suddenly doing the job. And again, in this organization I was talking about, the managers are saying, they, these processes are terrible who's responsible for these processes and then you know this who who which idiot would have had a process like that and then people say well you're the idiot because it was your process no it's not i would never have come up with a process like this and said well how would we be doing it then so and i don't think it's i don't think i don't think people genuinely set out to get things no. wrong i just think they evolve in that way uh-huh. and they, and they evolve in a way that you know is around it's Nearly everything in the corporate world is driven around not being, not making a mistake, rather uh-huh. than not get it, rather than getting it right spectacularly. Uh-huh. So you know, leadership decisions. We we don't take a risk because if we get it wrong, that would be career limiting. So people don't think I'll do, I'll do that really risky project because it could make us all a billion dollars more. They say I'll do that. I'll knock a few people out of the organizations because it's less risky. No, uh-huh. some great leaders do, of course, and we all know who they are. But actually, most leaders don't. They're focused on loss aversion or loss prevention rather than actual being brave. Being brave is not, and being brave is a feature of resilience, but it's not something you find very often.
0: Yes, and. That to me speaks to kind of organizational resilience. You know, have yeah. you enabled your organization to allow people to make mistakes and to try things that don't work, and it's not going to destroy your organization? Or is your entire company so fragile that if one person makes one mistake, it's going to be catastrophic? And certainly, there are certain kinds of mistakes that it doesn't matter how resilient your organization is, you're not going to survive. But, um, Having so many potential points of failure makes everybody kind of tiptoe around because people can usually tell if the organization is kind of glass as we've been talking about and if it's that fragile. And then their their aversion to risk just makes sense because they don't want to be the one that spoiled everything for everybody.
1: And one of the biggest areas of risk are family businesses where
0: mm-hmm. you know, you've
1: know you got the situation where dad's in charge or mums in charge. And they're the people who are least capable of being in charge, but no one can take them down because, of uh-huh. course, they're never leaving the business. They're focused on handing it over to their favorite son rather than the best person. And, you know, you can, whilst, you know, family business doing spectacularly well, I'm working with one where that is a real problem
0: now. Uh-huh.
1: The family structure is in the way. No one can challenge the top blog. They're bringing people in to do a great job, but then they don't let them do it because, of course, the, the, the leader, doesn't like their ideas being challenged, doesn't uh-huh. like the way they re- they did it in 1863, you know, when, uh, <laughs> when I first came into the business from grandpappy. You know, that's how, it, like you said, it's always been done that way. So why would you change? Rather than saying it's always been done that way, so why would you kind of ca- carry on? Unless it's working, of course, because that's a great reason to carry things on.
0: Absolutely. Now, we've been focused a lot so far today on kind of resilience and on changes that we're seeing um, and I think more focused maybe on organizations and people that have been successful through this and, and maintaining that, but a conversation I'm hearing a lot more, especially over the last few months is the idea of burnout. And I know that's something that you work on with your clients. Um, and so I'd love to hear, maybe we could start with how you define burnout and what you're seeing as some of the major causes of burnout.
1: Um, yeah, that's a great question again. And Burnout's a tricky subject because
0: uh-huh.
1: it was invented, or the term was defined in the 70s, um, I think an Austrian guy, Herbert Fritz and Ziger or something like that, so I'm terrible with names. Um, and it was it was really invented as a term for the caring professions because what uh-huh. happens when you have burnout? You you um, you feel burned out. Um, you um, are overworked and overwhelmed with the amount of work you have, so you, you lose your efficiency and effectiveness. Uh-huh. But you also lose your sense of caring and that's mm-hmm. why it started in the caring professions, because, of course, what happens with carers who don't don't care is that they lose the rationale, the job overwhelms them, and they lose that one thi- that one thing that's all about. And I talk to mm-hmm. lawyers, and I say, when was the last time a lawyer cared about anything except, you know, billing hours? And they all laugh hysterically, because actually what a lot of people mean by burnout is they're overwhelmed, they're working so hard, they're doing so mm-hmm. many hours, that they actually are so stressed that the negative effects of stress take them over, and their bodies literally begin to... Um, suffer the effects of um, the steroid hormone cortisol. And so hearts, guts, insulin, brains start to really suffer because they're overworked. And Mm -hmm. so we have this situation called burnout. It's often given away about things like shingles or Bell's palsy or feelings of real tiredness, need for sugar, um, lethargy, uncaringness. And you'll see a lot of people in lockdown exhibiting these situations because, Mm -hmm. of course, what helps with burnout are things like, um, you know, social contact. Now, here's the uh-huh. thing. burnout's actually a workplace medical condition, and it's actually a sign of a workplace performing badly if people have burnout. So that's interesting because yeah. people think it's, oh, it's all about the employees. So do you know what we need to do? We need to give them more resilience. But if you have a broken organization with the most resilient people, eventually wear them down. So, uh-huh. you know, we have to look at the things that cause the most burnout. A lot of those things are travel you know a lot of those things are frustration with technology that doesn't work but the number one thing that causes burnout guess what it might be elizabeth
0: i'm tempted to think that it's it's something about expectations of availability of constant go go go
1: that's number 6
0: okay but number
1: <laughs> one by a long way is organizational meetings
0: Ah, oh, that's yes. Yeah. Sitting,
1: chewing your own leg off with boredom <laughs> as the sales manager pontificates for five and a half hours about all the things <laughs> you should be doing and having no idea what they're talking about. Um, it is a very interesting correlation, organizational terms. I think um, I think it was a report on Freakonomics, actually, funny enough, it was a lovely stat, that actually people, people, the people who enjoy meetings most and find the greatest value are the people that run them.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And um, anyone sitting in the meeting is having a worse time than the person running the meeting. So... What we do is we find that, you know, it's really interesting. You'll find that most meetings are scheduled around the hour. So basically Mm -hmm. you have an hour's meeting. And it's funny, isn't it, how that meeting becomes an hour rather Mm -hmm. than saying we have a meeting for innovation, a meeting for communication, and a meeting for decisions. And actually, you know, the meeting for communication where you just sit and listen, that should never be longer than 20 minutes. You've got a performance Mm -hmm. review, which should be 50 minutes. Every meeting should start at 10 past the hour. So you've got time to go and have a cup of tea and there's always a 10 minute break between the meeting, especially Mm. in this lockdown thing where, frankly, meetings are more intense at the moment on Zoom and Teams and actually get more done. So the meeting should be shorter, not longer. And I was talking to the sales director of an organization who was saying, and I even said this, and maybe not to you, but um, he has 200 sales reps scattered around the world and and he's Mm -hmm. always done meetings and he has a four and a half hour meeting and they all go around division by division and report on their results. And wow. they talk about what they're doing. I mean, I said, well, why don't you just shove that down in the three-line report? Oh, we can't. I've got time to write reports. I said, we haven't got time to sit in a four-and-a-half-hour meeting. And no one reads the report. So I said, well, drop my test in. But make the meeting an hour and really, really punch it up. and Make it interesting. Hold people to account. Learn from the best. Learn from the worst. And, and then they said they did this meeting the next way around. And people said... There was something like another four deals per division because of wow. those extra four hours that they mm-hmm. got back, three hours they got back. And it, was a, and it was a very easy thing to say that the fastest way to reduce burnout and increase ROI of effort in organization is to look at your meetings. Yes. The vast majority, let's say 80% of all meetings are a waste of time. Uh-huh. they've got the wrong agenda the wrong motives the wrong people they're focused on um, procedure politicking showing off instead of actually doing something that has any need Now, of course good meetings are great uh-huh. organization I worked with yesterday they have a, a quick 20 minutes every morning what we're doing today where we're going and at the end of the day they have a quick net 20 minutes to call at the drive home even though they're all sitting home on zoom and they say right how's it been what's been going on and they said we're doing that because of because we're on teams the short the fast everybody's Uh staying in touch with each other. We know exactly what's going on because of course when you're not in the office, you miss that hearing Joe around the corner talking to, you know, to um, Bettina saying, Oh, I've just done this with X, Y, Z. And she perks her ears up and goes, Oh, that's a great idea. I could do that for my clients. We're missing all that. Uh So what they've done is recreated all their meetings and they have very, very few meetings now. And yeah, I talk to some people and they are in teams calls, you know, it's just relentless from eight in the morning till six at night, then they're doing their work. Uh-huh. I mean, and- you know, for goodness sake, talk about not learning. This is just bizarre. So, burnout and meetings go hand in hand. Poor leadership practice obviously comes pretty high on the list and a lack of that- resilience. And, of course, this is the th- thing you can't burn people, you can't blame the people for burning out because it's a uh-huh. workplace situation.
0: That makes uh, total sense. I, as soon as you, you started talking about meetings, a former client of mine popped into my head. Um, it was a large organization, quite successful, but, but it starting to show signs of, of issues. And I am not exaggerating when I say that of the middle management team that we were primarily working with, all they did all day long. Was go from one meeting to the next, yeah. and I remember because they had the they had those laptops that dock. Um, so this was you know a few years ago, like I said, and so they'd just be carrying around their little ThinkPads, and then they they never had time to go back to their workstations and dock okay. them. And even then, though, because they were in person meetings in conference rooms, you had that like the time to get everybody set up. So if people needed to run to the restroom, or if they needed to get a glass of water, or a cup of coffee, or tea, or breathe there was at least a little bit of shuffling in between meetings where you could do that. Now with Zoom, people are just running, like you said, straight through from eight to six and it's back to back to back to back to back. And there are times when you're at home and you still don't have time to eat lunch. And it's, it's really uh, challenging for people. And like you said, um, I can, I can completely see why that's why that's a a major contributor to burnout because I know what I feel like when I'm back to back like that I have follow-ups that I need to make from the 8 a.m. meeting and it's 4 p.m. and I still haven't done those. Plus I have follow-ups from the 9 a.m. meeting and the 10 a.m. meeting and the 11 a.m. meeting and it's just overwhelming.
1: And if the one benefit to lockdown was increased productivity, you don't increase productivity by throwing more work in. You just increase mm-hmm. burnout. What you do with productivity is you uh, you get the same result from half the time, and then you can do the review and the innovation and the bits and pieces you need to do. But of course, no managers are greedy, aren't they? They think, well, actually, you know, those people at home—they're doing that thinking thing. We don't want thinking. We want <laughs> do
0: do dooby be, dooby be. doo. I think there should
1: be a song called something around dooby dooby do. Be, do,
0: be, do. <laughs> that that makes so much sense. And then um also to to what you were saying in terms of it starting in the caring professions, that's fascinating because I know again here in the US we're seeing this. Um and nurses and doctors leaving the field because yeah. they're they're burned out by what's happened over the last year by not having the support from their organizations and certainly you know in a global pandemic like a lot of that was imposed by the situation but As an organization, if you had people working more and more and more hours and you weren't taking care of your people, you know, a 7 p.m. clap on your balcony or your fire escape isn't going to make up for uh, the situation that people feel when they're just constantly um, being pulled in in too many directions.
1: But how about this? How about a 7 p.m. clap on the balcony, but then come the wage round and effectively all of those people get a wage cut? and then be mm-hmm. surprised and then be surprised when they suddenly start saying well why am I working 17 hour days because I didn't mind it at first because I'm a caring person and I but then I've become utterly overwhelmed and then I'm watching people making vast sums of money out of my endeavor and I'm mm-hmm. not even being recognized as being worth I'm a pay rise I just get a pay cut so you know and I think it's the same with sales people isn't it you've got to You've got to balance things. You've got to understand that people need balance in their lives. They need light and shave. They need ups and downs. They need time off and time on. And the problem is we're sort of terrified that if we give people some time off, that we'll never get it back. Mm-hmm. Rather than thinking, actually, with the vast majority of people, if you give, if you give them slack, they'll always repay you.
0: I actually was just having a conversation with a sales leader earlier this week. And um, he mentioned that he had heard from somebody else on the leadership team that his team was taking too much paid time off, PTO. And they're at 120% of budget for Q2 wow. already.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and so, you should, be I celebrating ser- that. you should be celebrating that paid time off.
0: Yeah. And he, he was, you know, he was very quick to say, you know, I, I am happy that they're taking it and I want them to take it, but I do want to also make sure that we have the pipeline so that we come back and have a successful Q3. But I think so many organizations and so many leaders don't know how to message to people, don't know how to communicate, don't know how to set expectations around, you should be able to take time off and fully disengage. Yeah. And especially now that um I know in the UK you guys are you guys are doing a, a good job with vaccinations. Here we're seeing um, you know, decent traction. So I got my I am as of today fully inoculated. It's been two Ooh. weeks since my second vaccine. Woohoo, I should party. Go outside double, take a mask off. <laughs> we should double your target then, shouldn't we? <laughs> shouldn't we? Um and so understanding how um how to effectively support people in um when when they do need that time off, you know, uh, like you said earlier, one of the key aspects of resilience and the key aspects of avoiding burnout are things like social contact, yeah. and people haven't had that now for over a year. Many people, um, some people have had too much contact with with people in their homes. Oh, yeah, <laughs> they don't want to ever see them school. again. Yeah. Oh, I I feel so bad for parents. I I just I cannot even imagine. I have a cat, and that is more than That's enough. It, isn't it? <laughs> Those but, <laughs> oh, she's lovely um she has appeared on the podcast a few times before i oh, realized nice. i need to not only close the door but lock the door and put something under the doorstop because otherwise she, <laughs> she she's <laughs> she's tricky <laughs> all right this has been um such a fascinating conversation i know every time i talk to you i feel like we could have a three-hour podcast but um probably that would not be a great listening experience so <laughs> Uh, might might as well start to wind down a bit. Um, one thing I always love to ask our guests for is: Do you have any resources that you would recommend to our listeners? And that could be books, it could be podcasts, it could be really anything that um, that you found useful.
1: Um, I, and I would point you towards my own podcast because we've had some amazing guests. Uh, Resilience unraveled is available at podcast hosts and such like. There's um, I, I watched something quite recently. Uh, on Uh a video, and it was called The Inner Mind of a Procrastinator. Ah. And it's the secret of actually just about all human psychology. And it's the secret of managing anxiety and the secret of managing all sorts of things. It's very funny. I think it's called Adam Butler or something like that. But it's great for procrastinators, but it's also great for people that catastrophize and have anxiety. It's also great for people who are prone to addiction. You often find that in sales organizations. Mm. You know, we don't get work done because we're busy doing something else more so something easier and more fun. Have a look at that. Enjoy it and then really think about it because it's got some very big messages for for leadership. Such a simple idea, but I love it. And I think it's it's got so many messages for resilience as well.
0: I am very intrigued and I will be looking that up and we'll make sure to include that. In the show notes, it's also right, one of the
1: funniest presentations I've ever seen. And uh, you know, in terms of how to give a presentation on TED Talks, I mean, it's brilliant.
0: Yes, it's it's amazing how much more you can communicate um, when you're entertaining as opposed sure. to just that that same information. I'm sure could have been communicated in a in a boringly presented research paper. Not that research papers are bad, but sometimes they are presented in ways that are not. All that engaging um, exactly. and would not have gotten as much traction. All right, Russell, if you want to people to learn more about you and more about your work, where should they go?
1: Uh, well, as I said, um, our, our podcast is Resilience Unraveled. Uh, they mm-hmm. can come to our um, main website, which is qedod.com, and uh, they can also hook up with me in on LinkedIn uh, under my name, Russell Thackeray. Uh, Strange that. And um, they're the best ways to get <laughs> hold of me. I'm always happy to talk to people, engage with people, um, I'm a great believer in paying it forward. So if you've got some questions or need some help or need some resources, just drop me a mail and I'll see how I can help you.
0: Absolutely. You are always a wonderful person to talk to. So thank you so, so much for coming back Pleasure. to the show today, Russell.
1: Thank you so much, Elizabeth. It's been a joy to be with you again.
0: And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into today's show. You can find the notes and resources for everything that Russell and I have been talking about today at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 304. Make sure to tune into the podcast next week for another great guest. If you enjoyed the show, please recommend us to a friend that helps more people discover the show. And if you haven't subscribed, make sure to do that. You can do it wherever you're listening right now, and you'll get every new episode as soon as it goes live. We love feedback, so you can leave us ratings and reviews in Apple Podcasts, or email us with direct feedback, questions, and guest suggestions at podcast at criteriaforsuccess.com. Make sure to check out the blog at criteriaforsuccess.com slash insights and follow us on Twitter at CFS Playbook. Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success. Happy selling!